Welcome to Gin and Topic. I'm Sarah. And I'm Anya. And every week we seek to learn a little bit of something about absolutely anything. All with the help from experts and rather a lot of gin. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Do you want to know who we're talking to today? Yeah, go on then. We are going to talk to Professor Emily Rayfield. Okay. And Emily is a British paleontologist. Ah, yes, I know about those because of friends. <laughs> and she's a professor in paleobiology in the School of Earth Sciences at the University of Bristol. Hey, hey. I mean, no, because I'm Yui, but also yay because Bristol. Bristol. Yeah. Um, so her research focuses on the function of living and extinct animals. And she uses some kind of analysis called the Engineering Technique Finite Element Analysis, or FEA for short. I absolutely know what that is. Mm, sounds quite intriguing. I no, no idea what it means. <laughs> and I have no idea what it is, especially even when you think about our topic. Because our topic is computers and oh. fossils. Oh. So I oh. think we're looking at the technique... But also fossils. I just thought paleontologists like dinosaurs. Yeah. Found stones and went, oh, look, it's not just a stone. No, paleontologist is. And therefore it's a fossil remain of a dinosaur thing. Yeah. Yeah. And our question, Mm. how have computers and technology helped us understand how extinct animals walked, flew and fed? And now I'm just in an episode of David Attenborough with Walking with Dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah. I'm just there going, I don't know and I don't know if I care to know. <laughs> well, let's let Emily in well, and see yeah. if she can she entice can us to care. Me. Yeah. Have you got a gin? I have, yes right here excellent <laughs> cheers. cheers cheers and tell us about the whitby gin yeah so i've got whitby gin um i've got the bottle here it's a really lovely bottle it is. Um, because actually on the bottom it's also fashioned into the shape of a fossil oh, as you can see oh cute you have to be really careful with the lid when you turn it's it upside really cute. down yes exactly yeah but it is really cute yeah so i like this for a number of reasons one is that um it's very nice gin um, first and foremost, but also because um, I'm from originally from North Yorkshire, and uh, Whitby was a place that we used to go quite a lot when we were when I was a kid, and also it was the place where, um, as a paleontologist, I uh, as a, a budding paleontologist, I found my first ever fossil, Aww. so which was actually an ammonite, actually, oh, similar nice. to what's on the bottom of the uh, of the gin here. So it kind of holds special memories. For me, in that sense, so I, I thought this would be a very nice gin for us to have for the podcast. Yeah, yeah. and if you got yours with cucumber, it's a, it's live actually. Oh yeah. See, I went. I picked lemon out today. I'm sorry. I just picked the nearest thing. I don't mind it actually because tasting it, the lemon goes really nicely with the with the Whitby gin. It is nice. It's a good gin. That's a proper gin. Yeah, this is very nice. This is the, they do a few different types, but this is the original one, and I think this is yeah, I like this a lot. yeah, it's it's, it's a it's the gin we like. Isn't it, it is, yeah. it really is a proper ginny gin, a proper London dry, but it's not too dry. No. It's nice and easy drinking, which is what we need. 
<laughs> Always. Always. I've also got water today because I am being an adult. Oh, that is quite adult. Thank you. Very well done. Thank you very much. I don't. No. And after a stressful day, that probably means that I will um, drink the gin a bit too quickly. I can always make you another one. Oh, shame. I've got no extra ice out here. Shame. Oh, well. Oh, well. Um, So lovely. We can enjoy Whitby gin. Um, How easy is it to find a fossil? Just, I know we're going to get in, but I'm distracted. No, I'm just distracted by... Finding a fossil on a beach, because I know Norfolk, everyone talks about finding fossils on the beach. And I walk up and down and go, how do you see a fossil in all those stones? Good question, because it depends also very much on where you are. Mm. You know, places like the, the coastline around Whitby, um, you do, it's fairly, I wouldn't say easy, but it is quite, it's, it's not difficult to find material for find fossils on the coastline there. You know, you've got rocks which are content, which are full of fossils, which are on the coastline and they're eroding away. And especially after there's been a storm or some bad weather, you might, and the same occurs for Norfolk, where you were just talking about too, you know, lots of things have been, you know, the, the coastline has been eroded away. Things have been washed down onto the beach. So if you have a, you know, have a good look around, you have to, what we call it, get your eye in, basically. And so after a while, you know, you spend your time picking up rock after rock after rock, and realise there's nothing in there. And eventually... You, know, you find the fossil and you think, ah, oh, so that's what I'm looking for. You know, shapes or little bits of projections that you can see sticking off, sticking out, yeah. That's my problem, you see. I don't ever pick them up. Oh, <laughs> I just expect them to, like, <laughs> I was going to say her problem is your eyesight, actually. And my eyesight. But okay, yeah. Both of them. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> Must get on with the proper questions, okay. although okay. they may also include finding fossils. Often. Mm-hmm. Okay, so computers and fossils. Mm-hmm. Immediately, I'm like, computers are new, fossils are old. They have nothing to do with each other unless you're looking at a really old computer and it's a fossil in itself. Okay, good. That's excellent. That's all I've got yeah. there. Okay. Um, how how have computers and technology helped us understand how extinct animals walked, flew, and fed? I'm with David Attenborough and walking with dinosaurs. Okay, so that's more than I have because I went. Oh, I don't know. I I didn't know they did. So <laughs> great. So that's my level on this one. Yeah. I would say really at intelligent two-year-old today maybe nice yeah. i like that <laughs> Thank an intelligent you. two-year-old are you going to have a tantrum at some point if you knock my gin over i will <laughs> if you ruin my gin i absolutely will <laughs> i like that thank you okay so what do we what other knowledge might we have i mean i'm thinking david attenborough walking with dinosaurs because that was but that was like recreating they created computerized sort of versions of dinosaurs to show us what they would look like and I it. didn't watch it it was a long long time ago okay good it's a very I long time ago but I'm thinking if I was to guess how yeah. computers would help I would think that you could sort of plug in your ideas you could run facts through run a program stuff and like, oh, this is it. one of our worst ones, Sarah. We really know nothing here. This is, oh dear. I think you could sort of plug in like shapes of bones and kind of work out movement bit better than holding them like I was just demonstrating <laughs> to sort of show how joints move. That's my, you that's stop my knowledge now, if I'm honest. <laughs> so tell us about computers and fossils. How do they link? <laughs> 
<laughs> right. Okay. So, um, so we, you're familiar with fossils, yeah? So they're the kind of the remains of, of past past life, basically. So it, they can be probably when you think of a fossil, you think of like a, a bone or a tooth, but they can also be, you know, bits of plants. They could also be things like you know footprints or traces that an animal an animal has left. Or we can have things like you know chemical fossils, so kind of biological chemicals that indicate that there was once some kind of past life. Yeah. <laughs> No, poo. If you find fossilized poo, it looks like a piece of poo that's turned to rock. Because isn't isn't that is it the um uh, something tooth? Right. So I was thinking like exoskeletons, and you went poo. <laughs> <laughs> Devil's toenail. Isn't that poo? Yes. No, no, no. That's actually shell. That's shell. So you find those actually in Whit- you find those in Whitby. I have found a lot of those in Whitby. Oh. Oh, so that's shell, not poo. Yeah. On the bottom of the of the Whitby is the ammonite. What is an ammonite then? Obviously not poo. So an am- <laughs> yeah, an ammonite is not poo. Um, <laughs> an ammonite is an animal, and it's related to things like um, squid and octopus and other. There's a living animal called uh, a nautilus as well, too, which has a coiled shell. Um, a little bit like an ammonite too. So, so they're part of that. They're extinct now. They lived for you know hundreds of millions of years, but then they went extinct, and all we've got left now are kind of remnant, lots and lots of shells. And actually, very very recently, some exciting fossils that were found um, in the UK near Swindon, which showed little bits of soft tissues inside the ammonites as well too. Uh, but if you can imagine, like a big coiled shell with um, a squid-like animal with tentacles sticking out of the shell, mm. then you've got something like an ammonite. Are you liking and these that? Things got Imagining quite big. you've just yeah. pulled that face. Of, I, d- I, I don't know so if it, just because of what I've been reading, I've made it into like a horrible sort of weird fantasy creature that's going to come and attack me. But for some reason I have. And they See, were probably lovely. Well, you can get t- teeny tiny ammonites, but you can also get ammonites of shells that are about a metre or, or more across. So they will probably, they will be quite something if you met one of those in the ocean. Yeah, see, this is why I find the ocean a bit scary. Because you just, I know those are extinct, but that, oh, mm. yeah, yuck. Okay, so we've got all sorts of fossils, either shells, animals, but you're also saying about plants and biomatter. Not poo. Not necessarily (laughs) So, so the things that I mainly work on with computers are actually bones. Ooh, okay. So, not so, so sometimes with shells, sometimes with microscopic animals, but mainly with bones. The exciting things to find. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. think. So, but others, others would disagree with me, but I think they're more exciting. Yeah. Um, and so, so if you think about, you know, you've got your fossil and it's it's been petrified. It's for the most part been turned to turned to rock. And so, what we can do with it, we can look at it, like you said, you can actually, you know, if you've got a skeleton, put it together and manipulate and see how the bones moved against each other. But also, often if the preservation is really good, you can actually see um, if you were to chop it, the bone up, you could see inside and see all the fine detail of what the original structure of the bone looked like and so on. Uh, but obviously to do that, we'd have to actually chop it up and therefore you, then you'd lose the fossil. Oh. You'd chop it up into bits to get an idea of what it looked like inside. So where the computers come in is actually the first step of that is using x-rays to look inside the fossil. Oh. So you'd be familiar with x-rays, obviously. Oh. If we use very high-powered x-rays to actually look, look inside the rock itself, oh. 
then we can build a picture of not only the outer shape of the of the skeleton or the fossil itself, but actually look inside and see what shape it is. Mm. And when we've got things like, I'm particularly interested in working on skulls because I do think they're the most exciting. Skulls part, are the coolest part. They are. They're, they're the know. best bit. Very cool. We've got a couple uh, we found, but they're not. I thought you were talking skulls. about ours for a second. I was no, like, no. well, yeah, we've got a skull, Sarah. It's like the basic little thing you need to have. I like finding them on the walk. So we've got a little mm. rabbit skull. And um, we've got a sheep skull. Which is sheep skull. Uh, is it's cool. ironic because, you know, we've got those in our house, which our house is pretty full of vegetarians. Yeah, but it's also full of masks and the skulls are just uh, yeah. like a mask. Yeah. Um, but they're not fossils. They're relatively recent <laughs> animals, but skulls are pretty cool. Yeah. If you imagine you've got a skull and it's been fossilised, it's often preserved in a lump of rock. But actually, there's lots of interesting stuff inside that skull that can give you clues to how, how the animal behaved in life. So, for example, we could look at, say, the shape of the brain if we could get inside as well, too. Or we could look at, you know, the structure of the joints and things in the jaws. We could mm. look at the shape of the teeth and so on. And often when you find these things, they're kind of they're in lumps of rock and some of the stuff is some of the skulls embedded in the rock. And you could spend a long time chipping it away or you could cut, you know, previously you could cut it in half and have a look at the cavity that was left by the brain. But if you're able to use very high powered x-rays, you can actually then look inside the fossil itself. And this is where the computers come in, because then when we get a series of x-ray slices through the fossil, we can use this, the computer and the software to actually stitch together a 3D digital model of the, of the fossil. Mm -hmm. And with that, what we can do is we then use other sort of special software, which allows us to pick apart what's bone and what's the rock. And then that allows us literally to paint the, around the fossil mm. and extract out digitally the shape of the original animal and separate it out from the rock. But we're doing all of this in a computer Clever. rather than spending ages you know, using like a dental pick or whatever, trying to pick apart the fossil from the rock that's surrounding it. And so that's where the computers come in. Okay, so being a sceptic for yeah. a moment, putting yeah. on that hat... Why do we bother doing all of that in the first place? <laughs> no, seriously, because some people are going to be sitting here going, okay, that's really cool that we could do that, but why do we need to do it? So I think at the start, there's a few reasons why. I mean, I think, you know, at the start, you mentioned you know, walking with dinosaurs <laughs> and David Attenborough and things like that. The general public really are fascinated mm. with these things. You know, kids are fascinated mm. by, by extinct animals. Mm. You know, the public themselves are fascinated with kind of past worlds and lost worlds and things mm. like that. So I think there's a lot you can get from actually, you know, studying these animals and then explaining to the general public, you know, exactly what these past worlds and past environments actually look like and capturing people's imagination. And um, I think as well, I once said someone described paleontology as like a gateway drug for science <laughs> because it gets people interested <laughs> in science, basically, yeah. you know, from a very young age. And that while they might not, you know, continue to be an avid paleontologist, then they become interested in other aspects of science mm -hmm. as well, too. And that's often what gets people hooked and then into the scientific kind of professions and things like that. Um, and I think another thing as well, too, and I always say this to my students when in the lectures, it's like if we took a snapshot now of all the animals and plants that, have ever, that we can see in our modern environments, we would have a very limited idea of what, you know, essentially, you know, biodiversity actually looked mm -hmm. like and the potential for evolution to kind of reach lots of different sort of solutions mm -hmm. to problems. 
So we, you know, we would never imagine, for example, that you could get these absolutely massive, like, you know, 50 ton, four legged sauropod dinosaurs, you know, the ones with four legs and the really long necks and their heads and these. You would never imagine that you could get these giant two legged carnivores like Tyrannosaurus rex, for example. Mm-hmm. Because we don't have anything like that in the modern world. Mm, mm. And so we would have a very limited snapshot of essentially what life was like. Mm. But actually going back in the past, we can see there's so many different types of animals and and Mm. plants and organisms that actually existed. Mm. And my colleagues who work on things like climate change as well, too, would say, actually, we know that the climate has changed in the past. And we know that animals have evolved and gone extinct. And often that's in response to changes in climate. And that's a really good way of actually understanding how future ecosystems might respond if we can Mm. see how they've responded in the past. Mm. So I think there's a lot of different reasons, scientific, getting people interested in science and just capturing and firing the imagination of the general public, why we will be interested in these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And you're still finding things new because I find that fascinating because we've been looking at dinosaurs you know, forever, because as you said, they're really interesting. And you've got dinosaurs are some of the you know, you've things. got um, Mary, Mary Anning, wasn't it? With was Mary yeah, Anning right, the yeah. fossil hunter in the Vic- Victorian yeah. times? Oh, she's pretty okay. cool. Um, and you know, that was a real passion, wasn't it, in the Victorians for collecting fossils? And you know, we've had that um, excitement, but we're still finding things new. Because I uh, wasn't there a guy on the Isle of Wight during lockdown who decided to then start cataloguing boxes and boxes of bones that he had. You <laughs> as know, you do, as you do, yeah, sorting yeah. out the sock yeah. cupboards. When you're in the lockdown, spices. there's not yeah. much else to exactly. do. Yeah, <laughs> and then found something brand new. Yeah, did absolutely. Yeah, I mean that was an interesting example of material or some fossils that had actually been found already but just for whatever reason no one had got around to actually looking at them in great detail and sometimes we need to have other discoveries that make other fossils that we've had for ages make sense if you know what I mean um and then but also there's there's cases of new uh, new fossils being found a new species being described particularly of dinosaurs as well and many other animals all the time and so it's absolutely fascinating that you can still you know our, our knowledge of these animals is still increasing hugely and so do the computers then help us to increase that knowledge quicker than we than we would if we're just doing it all by hand? And has it changed anything that we've thought of about dinosaurs? Ooh. So the computers are not necessarily helping us find the animals, find the, the dinosaurs faster, but what they are doing is helping us understand how the animals lived in ways that was that were never possible before. And and the reason for that is that, um, so the kind of work that I do is that once we've got, I explained that we have our x-rays and then we can use that to create a 3D digital model. Now, once we have that 3D digital model, we can actually use methods that people use on, on living animals and on, on humans to understand how the skeleton works. And then we can use and apply those methods to understand how extinct animal skeletons work as well too. So that's a, a lot of the work is... Um, rooted in sort of biomechanics so that's basically applying like maths and physical principles to understand how skeletons work and so is it is it things like looking at a joint and going that's that's kind of like this joint and therefore moves in that way yeah so some of the things you can do is actually you know digitally stitch the the joints and the skeleton together 
And then you can look at sort of what we call the range of motion, the range of movement in each of those joints and think, well, you know, could it could it lift its arms up this, you know, could it lift its arms up like this to the wings? What kind of movement does it have in its limbs? But then we can also use those models then to what would happen if we actually put muscles around the skeleton as well too. You know, what kind of movement would those muscles generate? What kind of arc of movement? How much force would those, what, how forcefully would those limbs or wings move? How fast would they move? What can that tell us then about how fast the animal might have moved, for example? Or did it have enough? Could it generate enough muscular power to sort of fly in the air or not? Or, you know, those kinds of questions. And with, with this work that we do on skulls, it's also looking at, you know, how hard could the animal bite, for example? And therefore, what does that tell us about what it was feeding on? or maybe how it was feeding as well. And then so we can use other methods as well too. So there's, if you think about when you, when you design a structure to carry a load, like a bridge or an aeroplane wing or something like that, it needs to be strong enough to yeah. be able to withstand that load. But it also needs, there's also an economics in there as well too. Mm. You don't need to use too much material. Mm. So when you think about a bridge or, you know, an aeroplane wing or something like that, it's designed to withstand the loads that it experiences, but it's not overly designed, not overly engineered. I'm back at those school tests, you know, oh, when, when you had to make a bridge. Team bonding, Absolute make a bridge yeah. or protect yeah. an egg that then gets thrown from a yeah. height, that kind yeah. of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because my, my, my youngest son did that school the other week. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of my favourite days was protecting the egg. I loved that one. <laughs> His fell very fast, but it didn't break, he said. There you go, good. smashed it. But not, it not yeah. it. <laughs> but not smashed it, yeah. Um, so, so basically, it's those same kind of, if you think about those principles, and then we can use the same kind of um, what we call engineering methods and engineering software, basically, that engineers would use to sort of design test a bridge or also used for things like hip joints, you know. Yeah. What yeah. shape does this need to be? You need to withstand a load of someone walking around, but it doesn't need to be too big and bulky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's lots of computer packages that allow you to test, you know, when these structures are experiencing loads, they'll stress and they'll strain, and how much load can they withstand before they break. And the work that we do in the lab is using those same computer packages, mm. but applying them to animal skeletons and to dinosaur mm-hmm. and other extinct animal skeletons as well. Mm-hmm. So we take the skeleton... And we, you know, we apply loads to it that was simulated biting or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then we see, right, at what point, how much bite load could it withstand before it actually breaks? And what does that tell us about how the animal's eating? And if we apply that to lots of other types of animals, what does it tell us about how they've changed over time? And why are they changing over time, you know? Is that something to do with them feeding on different things? Is that something to do with the environment changing? Yeah. yeah, and how does that relate to how they're, you know, how diverse they are, and how they're spreading through the population, mm-hmm. things like that? Mm. So, what kind of things have you found out? So, some of the things that we've we've looked at um, are that we were really interested in. In fact, this isn't actually based on dinosaurs. This is based on the very, very earliest mammals. So, just at the okay. point which so we're going back about. 200 million years now mm-hmm. and we're actually focusing on little tiny animals that were about the size of shrews mm-hmm. that were found on what were then islands around the the, sort of the southwest the, the south of wales and also around the bristol region where, where i'm based <laughs> Woo, Bristol! So. that's normally where i'm based <laughs> right okay <laughs> So if you imagine at the time, we're back at sort of the, the very earliest Jurassic, mm-hmm. um, the sea levels were a lot higher than they are now. 
And if you imagine, if you know Bristol, then you know there's there's kind of like the high points around Bristol. Yeah. And then and then also other kind of areas like high points. Normally when I'm driving into Clifton where I normally live and my car's trying to get up the hill and it's going, it's not, it's it's happening, but slowly. (laughs) So if you think, yeah, if you go back 200 million years in time, you know, all of these little high points there would be islands dotted around in a kind of tropical sea, basically. Oh, that's cool. And... uh, and, and scampering around at the time with kind of the earliest, some of the earliest dinosaurs that we know of, and also some of the very kind of early, let's call them proto-mammals, because actually, depending on how you slice it, they're perhaps just outside kind of the mm-hmm. main group of mammals. Um, and one of the things we were, we know that we've known about these animals for a long time, uh, but uh, mammals had also been around, they coexisted for, with dinosaurs for about two thirds of their See, history, which I is find mad that, when you think about I, it. Yeah, I find that bonkers because when we think about dinosaurs, we think about the world that just has dinosaurs just in it. Dinosaurs. Yeah. We don't think about them as being together. I think I think the dinosaurs eat them all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the mammals that were around at that time, for the, for the most part, very different to the ones that we know of now. And so just lots of mice and rat-type things, shrew-type things. Some some were, some were got a bit bigger over time, but yeah, the ones that we're talking about are really kind of tiny little things, basically. And there was an idea that really when you know, these animals appeared on the scene that they were all just really generally eating whatever it could that they could get their hands on. And a bit like me. Yeah. <laughs> we're very similar in that way. <laughs> Yeah, but mainly insects, tiny things that they could actually eat. And one of the things that we were really curious about was actually whether at that very early stage in their evolutionary history, they were starting to actually eat different things and function in different ways Mm. because we all tended to pull these animals together. And um, so one of the things we looked at was using this computer software was to test if the the jaws of these animals were very different in how they functioned. Mm. And we found that one was a lot stronger than the other and... The teeth were quite different shaped anyway. That gave us some clues anyway in the first instance. But then from that, we were really curious to see, well, actually, that's okay. So our computer software is telling us that they that one was a lot um, stronger than the other, mm-hmm. right? So we could perhaps infer that they were doing something different. But then we went a bit further and we looked at what we call microware, which are tiny scratches on the teeth. Mm-hmm. So when you eat something, um, if you eat something that's quite scratchy, like, you know, um, a beetle, for example... <laughs> And it can leave very tiny hmm. marks on your teeth. It's another reason not to eat beetles. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't planning on eating them, if I'm <laughs> honest. I kind of thought I'd stick with what you've got for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so, so one of the things we looked at was where we looked at living animals and we looked at, lot, we looked at bats, actually, that ate, that we knew, modern anim, living animals, yeah. that we knew ate different things because we knew what their diets were. And we found that actually the pattern of scratches on their teeth really matched the different things that they're eating. So there were you know, some bats which ate a diet of lots of kind of hard, scratchy stuff, mm. and they had certain very rough textures on their teeth. Some bats which ate kind of softer things like moths, for example, mm-hmm. and they had lots smoother teeth. And so we applied the same methods to the early mammals, and we found that we, f- real, we found differences in their teeth as well. So the ones which had stronger jaws had more scratchy teeth, mm. And the ones that had weaker jaws had smoother teeth as well. And so that was backed us up in terms of our computer methods that mm. suggested they're eating different things. And then the tooth shape, the tooth scratches also backed that up as well. Mm. So that was it showed us that even really early on, mm. when mammals were just evolving, they were already starting to eat different things. Yeah. And was that you know? because they were on different islands and had different habitats or 
No, they were all living together. They're all together. Animals that we were looking at were living together, basically. So all competing for food. So you eat different things so that you can get more of it. Yeah. So they were eating different things. Yeah. So it sort of changed our idea of these very early animals just all kind of eat, you know, early, quite simple, Mm -hmm. eating whatever they could, insects wise, that they could get a handle on. But actually, no, they were actually quite complex. They were doing different things already, you know. Mm. And that was really nice to find that out. And it's nice because it was like a, a local thing as well, too, to animals that were quite close to home, you know, in the Bristol region, but also in South Wales as well, too. So that was a that was a really fun study. Yeah, really cool. Really cool. And if you didn't use the computers then, would it, you know, you were saying that being able to actually have a look at the bats and see the marks on the teeth and everything to back up the computer. So what is it like a chicken and egg as to what comes first? So I think if we if we didn't have the computers, right, so what we could do, we'd look at the specimens and we're like, right, this one's got, they've got different shaped teeth and they've got different shaped jaws. And that would basically be it. We could say, well, yeah, from that, we'll, we'll, we suggest that they may be eating different things, mm-hmm. you know, and therefore they're starting to diversify quite early on in their evolutionary history. Um, but actually using the computers meant that we could then test the ideas that we had. Mm. And I think that's the key thing, mm. is that a lot of paleontology in the past has been about doing exactly that, you know, looking at specimens, mm. thinking about what we know about living animals and other fossils and making predictions about what we mm. think those animals were doing. Mm-hmm. But the thing about the computer methods is that we can actually take it a step further and we can test those mm. ideas. Yeah. And that's where the computers really come to the fore is that we can set up, you know, like other sciences, we can set up hypotheses and then we can say, right, if this is the case, this jaw will be stronger than this jaw. This this tooth would have different scratches on it to this teeth. And that would be our prediction. Then we can test that and we can then test Mm. the hypothesis. Mm. I think that's the big difference in terms of using lots of the computer methods is it moves it from like kind of, you know, just a suggestive science, which you know, ideas based on by people who really, really knew their anatomy and knew what they were talking about, but you could never actually test that. Yeah. And now you can actually say, do you know what? If that's true, that. this is going to be the case. I can test that. Yeah. And see whether that really is the case. Yeah. So when did we start actually using these computers? I say we, royal we, obviously. I'm not using it. <laughs> I'm not doing that. It's not my area. But when did we start using these? Is it a very recent thing? It's not that recent. I mean, you know, I I was started to develop some of these methods back when I was doing my PhD, which was um quite a little while ago. A little while ago now, shall we say. Um, 20 years ago, basically. Um, we, you know, and and I think that was really the start of actually people have been x-raying fossils before because x-rays, you know, were around, but we didn't really have the the software the and the computer the, the computer capability, you know, computers mm. weren't fast enough basically mm. to be yeah. able to stitch together all these images. We didn't have the software available to us that allowed us to do that. I mean, when I started my PhD, we managed to get um, uh, a, a CT scan, which is the, the x-rays yeah. that we use, computer tomography, and it was of a, an Allosaurus, which is a dinosaur skull, which is nearly a metre long. And it was in a hospital in Montana in the, U, in the US. And, um, and I got these, these images, and there were a series of, of, of digital pictures. Yeah. You know, of, if you imagine, like, slices right through the head. Yeah. 
And I got there and it was fantastic because you could see right inside the bones. You can see that it's got these weird horns on its head and you could mm. see these little cavities inside the horns. And mm. and then I, was, I had the pictures and I was like, right, what do I do now? Because <laughs> I don't have any software. <laughs> I didn't have any software that would enable me. Like we do yeah. now, we just plug it into a computer. Yeah. And, you know, often... If the rock and the bone are quite similar in density, it's quite different. You have to manually like paint around mm-hmm. the images. But sometimes they're really clear and you can just press a button and it, a lot of it is automated. Sort of a bit like when you take the background away from a picture. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So basically it works on like the grayscale of the images mm-hmm. and you can mm-hmm. just say, right, select everything in this range, ignore everything in this range, bing. Yeah, but then I didn't have any software at the time. I was like, what am I going to do now? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I've I've been alive twenty odd years, but even in that time, I know just from a kid being like, I want to watch videos on YouTube, which was only a thing when I was, you know, however many years old. It's massively the rate of technology has just got faster and faster and faster, and now you see, you know, Apple coming out with a different phone every year or whatever, a different laptop every year, and that speed of it changing must have then influenced all the stuff you could do it went from zero to 100 super quick yeah it's funny yeah you're you're absolutely right but it didn't feel like i think in the last five or ten years it's it's gone super quick yeah but there was the first kind of five to ten years or five years or so at least it felt like the advances were coming quite slowly Mm -hmm. you know computer power was kind of increasing but these computers you know with so they're so yeah. underpowered, ridiculously compared to what we we know of now and what we used to now. That it, it took there was kind of a slow sort of lag period, but then yeah, yeah definitely in the last ten five to ten years things have just gone massively. And then, you know, and I think as well the capabilities that we have in terms of and the the ability of people to use coding as well to actually mm. automate a lot of this stuff. I mean, I see I'm using the Royal Wii here because yeah. actually my students, my students that are brilliant at doing that kind yeah. of stuff. Mm. And they're the ones that can write this code to do these automated things, you know, and do the kind of analyses that I was talking about, like the engineering analysis mm. to look at, you know, how the bones stress and strain and break and stuff. And they can do it on hundreds. They write some code and they can do it on hundreds of specimens in a matter of minutes. Wow. <laughs> it's just, and it's bonkers compared to to about the year and a half to create this one model or more, basically, when yeah. I was a PhD student. So, but that's fantastic because what it means is that a lot of what we were doing was like looking at one animal, yeah. which is fun mm-hmm. and really interesting, right? How did this animal move? How did this animal feed? Because it took so long to do stuff. Mm-hmm. But now what we can do is actually look at whole kind of populations a whole you know look across either a community or an ecosystem or look through evolutionary time Mm -hmm. and actually look at the function and and evolution of these animals and these huge scales uh, you know in in short in 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 a matter of weeks and months you know Mm -hmm. so we can really say something quite you know not only test these ideas about you know well how did it work but we can ask you know we can also look at well why did it evolve to look the Mm. way that it did Mm -hmm. and look at these big questions and then how did the how did all these animals interact together in a big community as well Mm. Mm. can we also explain then why the t-rex only has little diddy arms oh but i love the jokes about little diddy arms and the fact that they can't hug they can't hug they can't high five either they can't high five no <laughs> that was how my younger so, sister learned to walk yeah t-rex arms like a t-rex maybe it's a balance thing 
Well, it's funny you should say that. No, it's funny not. Funny you should say that because <laughs> meaning about two legs, it's got a massive head. Yeah, okay? huge. So, and it's walking on two legs. Yeah. So it's got to balance. It's got to put its centre of mass, is what you call it. It's like centre of balance somewhere in its body, so that it's act. So it's basically not going to seesaw itself over because it's got, you know, so it's, it's got such a huge head. Yeah. Can you imagine that head? It's it, it's. Full of bone, it's full of muscle, yeah. it's full of massive teeth as well, yeah. too. And so one idea is that actually as the head got bigger and bigger, that enabled it to become a, a more a, a more and more efficient predator, feed on bigger things, you know, that he's got his big chunky teeth that could probably mm. crack through bone, for example, which many other dinosaur teeth might have struggled with on a regular basis. And on that, the, the, the thing is that as its head gets bigger and bigger, if it doesn't reduce anything else at the front end of its body, <laughs> it, has, it has to either create a massive whacking tail at the back yeah. to balance itself out. And so one idea was that the, the, the forearms just got smaller and smaller because, A, yeah. they weren't needed so much because the head was doing all the heavy work. Yeah. Yeah. And also it, it would large arms that you see in some of the other dinosaurs would have maybe just tipped it off balance a bit too much. <laughs> so you were not you were not wrong necessarily with the balance Excellent. idea. Excellent. <laughs> and so then you could put that into computers as you were doing to then test the yeah. hypotheses yeah. of of yeah. growing so their arms and seeing what <laughs> happens. They fall over. Yeah. Exactly. What what one of the neat things <laughs> so one of the neat things that that, uh, that that I haven't done, but other people can do, is actually create these three D models yeah. of you know of the whole animal, and then look and see where the centre of balance like would be. Yeah, you know? and actually you can do it. You can you can make chunky T Rex, skinny T Rex. You can <laughs> you could if you wanted to increase the size of its head and see. You know, it wouldn't if to see if its centre of balance shifts further forward. Then at some point, oh, the poor T Rex. When you're bored at work one day, like I'm just going to mess around with the T. Rex for a bit and see what happens. You know how the Google Chrome game, when you're out of internet, you've got the T-Rex who jumps and said you're there like, I'm just going to see what happens if I make his head really thick. And just testing that, just going, okay, let's make the arms just a little bit longer, a little bit longer. When oh, it fell over. It's like then there's a I mean, forfeit for the person who just pushed it too far. <laughs> I mean, one of my favourite uh, old studies and we can use the computer methods that I've talked about now much more efficiently to look at how fast like animals like T-Rex could run. And then people have done that very well. But one of the old studies that was trying to test whether whether T-Rex could run or not looked at how much it would smash its head in if it fell over and depending on how fast it was actually moving. <laughs> and the paper actually, so the scientific paper actually comes with these fantastic illustrations of the animal falling <laughs> I mean, oh, but the beauty of computers oh, speed limits for a T-Rex but also there were no T-Rexes harmed in that study because it was all computer based <laughs> so it's okay but people have done the kind of biomechanical studies on the arms and show that the arms were actually quite strong mm. even though they were quite reduced and um, but one of the various ideas that we put forward one was that if it fell over it might need something to push itself up from the ground <laughs> And so it's doing uh, tiny, I, I, tiny press ups with its tiny, tiny arms. arms. <laughs> and uh, but another another thing as well, which 
was suggested in the past, which I'd, no one's really followed up on, was that it might be some kind of tool that used to titillate its partners. <laughs> during... <laughs> Why has nobody followed up on that? That definitely needs to be looked at. Yeah, I'd, fund yeah. that. Maybe... I'd fund that. I'd fund that <laughs> oh, it's the best fact I've ever heard. But I think that the, the the beauty of the computational approach is that we could we could if we wanted to <laughs> test those ideas. Now I'm not quite sure how you test that last one, but <laughs> I'm sure someone can find a way. <laughs> and can the computers also test hypotheses of the things that you can't find as fossils? So you know, as you're saying, you can find bones, but you've you yeah. can put together a a skeleton but then we're kind of guessing what's on top of that skeleton so can the computer help with that because i know you know there's been lots of talk about whether dinosaurs have fur whether dinosaurs had feathers how close to chickens whether they they were they were colorful or you know rhinoceros skin and how close well chickens are dinosaurs chickens i mean have you ever seen them terrifying um so yeah can the computers help with that kind of thing as well so in terms of things like um, skin and colour, uh, we actually have fossils that have been found preserved, which give us really give us evidence about both of those kinds of things. Oh. So actually, the, you know, fossils where, you know, what we call them is exceptional preservation, because normally all the things like the, the skin and the muscles and stuff will just rot away either before or during the, the you know, the animals being fossilised or being, you know, petrified. But in some cases, the preservation is such that it might get buried really quickly. It might be in an environment where there's not much oxygen. And so you, then you get bits of soft tissue like skin being preserved. Mm-hmm. And from that, you can tell, you know, in some animals, we can see the pattern of scales, for example. And, mm. and that shows you, you know, what the patterns of scales look like. But it had scaly skin, for example. But in terms of things like feathers and collar, there are fossils which have been found preserved where you actually have either feathers or feather-like structures, mm. which have been preserved in one way or the other. And in those feather-like structures, there are tiny little organelles, little sort of little sausage or round-shaped structures, which we see in living animals. And they uh, they uh, um, indicate the kind of colour that we find on the wings of some living animals, basically. Mm. So we can use our inference for what we see in living animals, so like the, whether these little tiny structures are sausage-shaped or round-shaped. Mm. And that gives us a clue to the, whether these, you know, when we find them, you know, on these sort of fossilised feather structures, it might give us an idea to sort of stripey pattern in, or it might show, sometimes you can tell that the structures were either a darker colour or a black colour, or ginger, for example, that's one of the things that comes out. Love a ginger dinosaur. <laughs> that's my kind of dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where it's actually just a, a beautifully preserved fossil in itself can give us those clues coupled yeah. with things like high powered microscopy that allows us to look at these sort of tiny you know microscopic structures mm-hmm. and then an understanding of what those structures are like and what they do in living animals but in terms of like what the computers can do um i think you know what you can do in terms of that is that often this all the soft tissues have rotted away like yeah. i was just saying and normally we don't have that but we know in living animals what the soft tissues look like, you know, what the muscles look like. So what the computers can do is allow us to sort of simulate different types of soft tissues. Mm-hmm. So we can see, you know, say if the muscles were this big, how was the limb moving or how was the jaw moving? You know, what happens if I change the size of the or the fastness of the muscles and how does that actually change mm-hmm. how the, the animal worked? Mm-hmm. So that's what the computers allow us to do that really easily, to do what we call sensitivity testing. 
to say, actually, if these muscles were bigger or smaller or they were put in a different place, you know, mm. how would they change how fast the limb moved or how quickly or forcefully it moved and things mm. like that. So they definitely have given us a tool, again, to sort of test these hypotheses, but just say, actually, we don't know what these soft tissues like muscles look like, but we've got a clue from, from related living animals. Mm. We can simulate them in our, in our computers, in our computer models, mm. and get an, an idea about how they're working. Because you think the skeleton's like a system of like levers and pulleys, basically. You've got like the levers are the, are the bones and the pulleys are like the muscles and the ligaments mm. that are moving them around. And so you've only got half of the evidence in your fossil, but the computers allow us to simulate the other part of the evidence, yeah. like the you know the pulleys and things, to yeah. see how they're actually making the structure move. Yeah. And do, are you also inferring that from the uh, density of the bone as well? Because using my knowledge here oh, okay. of, All what, right. of what bones my dogs are allowed to eat, <laughs> okay. okay, and the yeah. fact that... The, that raw fed dogs shouldn't eat load bearing bones because they are denser bones and therefore they can splinter more and they can do damage, but they're allowed any non load bearing bones. So are you also inferring from the sort of density of the bone as to how much muscle and ligaments and what their sort of use is or? Yeah, completely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So you can, you know, see, you can knowledge see from, from all the... over. Yeah, that was a really <laughs> random one to have. I'm not going to lie. I, I didn't know that about dogs. Well, what we can do with the x-rays, we can, you know, you've got the outer shape of the bone, but with the x-rays, you can see how thick what we call the cortex is. So the, the kind of ring of bone itself with the, and you've got either the marrow cavity or whatever inside. And so the ones which have got thicker cortex are going to be the stronger bones. Mm-hmm. And they're going to yeah. be things like the, the load bone bones. Um, and so we can see that from the x-rays. But then with the computer models as well, we can actually test exactly how strong they are as well too, by seeing how much load it would take, to, how much force it would take to break them. But then also we can see, you know, from simulating some of the muscles as well, how much and muscle you would need and where you would need to put that muscle in order to move them at the same time. So, so clever, yeah. so clever. So is there also the interaction with, I don't know, wear and tear on bones and as you were saying, marks on teeth and all that that can yeah. tell you about the social interaction. I'm not going to make a boning off. joke. It's there, <laughs> it's obvious, but I'm going to be an adult and not make it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so often, you know, you get bones which are preserved and they've got tooth marks mm-hmm. on them or scratches, which show that they've been eaten by something else. Mm. And uh, and a few in rare occurrences you can find, um, you know, People have said, oh, well, it's got these, these, these ones have got these scratches on them and they're so far apart. And this exactly matches how far apart the teeth are in this other animal. Mm. Now, there were some fossils that were found in um, Madagascar, which um, of meat-eating dinosaurs, which had these scratches on their bones as well, which were the exact spacing apart as animals from the same species. And so people were saying, oh, well, they, maybe they were just, they were, they were you know, cannibalistic and they were eating you know, their own species. I didn't see that in the Madagascar films at any point, <laughs> not going to lie. <laughs> but then, I, well, I was also thinking... I mean, as, King Julian had a whiff of cannibalism about I, it. <laughs> I was just thinking about it as evidence. He can go, excuse me, I know it was you. <laughs> I have seen evidence that, you know, this match you is your Trevor. <laughs> One of the things that I gave in our introduction was the fact that you use this analysis called the engineering technique finite element analysis. Which is a lot of words. So we've been talking about computers. Is it just the program that you use with the computer that is that, that FEA? 
Yeah, the the computer program is a tool to to um, use that mathematical method, basically, and that is the, the method that you would use to do things like design testing a bridge, an aeroplane wing, a hip joint, for example. So it's basically uh, it's a mathematical technique that takes a really complicated structure and then breaks it. Oh, it can be a complicated structure and breaks it down into a series of simple geometric shapes like bricks or tetrahedrons or whatever and then says right okay we've got this structure based on how elastic it is and based on how i've loaded it how much does this structure actually strain and then how much stress does it experience mm. and so you could do it pen and paper for a very simple problem but it very soon becomes really really complicated when you've got 2d and 3d shapes and the computer programs you could do it on pen and paper for a very simple problem some of us could not (laughs) (laughs) but what the computer the computer basically does it for you yeah and you you put the shape in you tell the computer how elastic and how stretchy that shape is you tell the computer what how it's been what load it experiences, you know, either there's a car on the bridge or there's my the weight of my body on the hip joint mm. or there's a muscle that's pulling on this joint, on this bone like this. And then the computer does the calculations and says, right, on that basis, your bridge or your hip joint or your bone is going to be stretched like this and it's going to experience this much stress as well too. Mm. And then if you keep increasing that input load, you know, more, 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 then eventually it'll get to a point where you know in life that that steel structure or that titanium hip joint or that piece of bone would actually shatter. Mm. And then then it's knackered. <laughs> basically. <laughs> and you don't want to get to that stage yeah. if you're an animal or a bridge or you have a hip implant, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so, and in fact, what you want to do is build in what we call a safety factor which is essentially how many more multiples of the normal everyday load you can experience before the structure breaks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we know that, you know, bridges have obviously got that built in, hip joints have got that built in, and we know actually that animals have got that built in as well too. Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, we, you, you learn about, you know, things evolve and, you know, the, then, mm-hmm. you know, the whole idea, you know, there's lots of you know, organisms that are all fighting for survival and then the ones which are best at doing a certain job. But actually, you know, there's uh, mechanics and how you know the, the environment that this, the animal experiences can have a large influence on you know the shapes of skeletons and things like mm, that mm. so yeah it's really interesting yeah and I think also those connections is when you've been talking as well about you know like the computer program and how you know it could be used for helping you to look at dinosaurs and things but also bridges and you know hip replacements and that looking outside and making those connections from other areas, looking at animals and the way they're behaving now or the way they move or the way they eat and and then inferring that and all of those connections with different areas. I think that's fascinating. I can see you getting excited, but that's another episode, Sarah, where we'd start linking up all the things we've done (laughs) and seeing how we can make them into a web. Well, I was also wondering how much of the computer programming is influenced by um, outside areas. So going back to David Attenborough and uh, walking with dinosaurs, you know, the fact that now you can produce so much more of that in the way that you can see those things moving. You could even do... 
the virtual reality of being there in that moment. Is there then a lot of that cross-feeding from media world and things in that computer programming? Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, from the first work, Walking with Dinosaurs, was kind of really when we were in the the infancy of using a lot of the computer techniques Mm. to really understand how the animals were moving and feeding and so on. But the CGI capability was there. But now definitely there's much more of the research in this area feeding into the CGI models for the popular science programmes as well, too. And then, you know, and, and that's actually then feeds back into the research as well, too, because when you actually see what you think is happening animated, mm. you can get a real sense of like, oh, right, well, you know, and then that can then feed into some of your new ideas you might have about models or whatever. So, mm. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Fabulous. Hello. I'm looking forward to the program. I actually want to go and watch Walking T-Rex. with Dinosaurs now. Oh, don't. If I start thinking about T-Rex again, I'm never going to stop <laughs> laughing. <laughs> Honestly, I'm going to dream about falling T-Rexes tonight and I'm Be so excited. Maybe that's what we need David Attenborough to do <laughs> next. <laughs> How far can you no, push a T Rex? He's too That's what he'd be doing that now. I don't think he'd be okay with doing. He'd be that. there going. This is a T Rex, <laughs> not in its natural habitat. We're going to try and push it as far as we can go. <laughs> <laughs> it's been fabulous. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. Really, really interesting. Some tremendous gin. Great gin. No idea that dinosaurs and computers were so well linked. Mm. There we are. <laughs> Um, really nice gin. Good gin. Really Bloody good nice gin. gin. Yep. Ow, ow, ow. I enjoyed that. And oh. not what I thought oh in God. terms of fossils and computers. No. I wasn't expecting that to be quite as engaging a use of, of computers. I understood all of it, which I was pleasantly surprised by because when I first heard it I thought oh god this is going to be one of those ones where I have to pretend I understand it by spend the whole time feeling a little bit dim until I get to ask the really stupid questions and I think because the computers are being used to do the stuff that is difficult to do is time consuming to do yeah but it's all connected with learning how they move, how they eat, how they interact, how yep. they do it. So it's just providing that that stuff that is hard to understand. Yeah. But the best part, I've learned T-Rexes, <laughs> their arms might be for balance. <laughs> and if they fall over, they can smash their little heads. Uh, also, well, that their, their arms are really strong. Really, really strong. strong. I, never, I just thought they were a bit redundant. And I would like somebody to do the research into whether they are used for titillation. Titillation. <laughs> little. <laughs> a bit worrying. But, yeah, that that whole being able to test things. Yeah. So you could test with that T-Rex. You could test. Quite that. how much diff damage they do to the head <laughs> how much damage have you done to your head with this gin quite a lot yeah i thought um, so and yeah being able to learn from sort of using hypotheses of things like the little shrew animals and what do they eat and looking at bats and stuff yep. of now and going they've got these kinds of markings they've got those kinds of markings and learning and that some of them might have eaten each other yes yeah yeah but there's evidence so, you know, you're going to arrest them. When Taylor Swift said no body, no crime, she wasn't talking about these. 
No, absolutely, because... Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose there wouldn't be if there wasn't a body, but that's the problem is that they've seen that body, they've seen those teeth, and they can identify whose teeth they were. Damn it, Trevor, they were yours. (laughs) Damn. And that thanks to computers that we can start to understand how dinosaurs can coexist within environments because you can start to plot neck Mouth size. I wish everybody could see the stupid hand movements Sarah is doing right now. They are ridiculous. Like a sock puppet. Right, come on, you. Let's get you another gin. It's been. Let's put you in your chair and give you another gin. Okay. (laughs) That sounds really good. So, in answer to how have computers and technology helped us understand how extinct animals walked, flew, and fed? A fuck ton. Fuck ton. Yeah. that little episode you got to the end so hopefully you did <laughs> that's very true <laughs> well done if you'd like more content from us then you can follow us on instagram you can and you'll also find our chief gin taster the gin monkey with tasting notes of all the gins that we're tasting in the series go on to instagram so it's worth following yeah yeah topic gin topic gin same on twitter same on Twitter. Send us a little tweet. Yeah, we're on Facebook too. Topic Gin, keeping it all nice and simple. And you can email us. You can, if you want, at hello at ginandtopic.com. If you click subscribe as well, that would be really handy. Reviews, host tell of people. Stuff for you to do. And we'll be back next week with another episode. I know. And another guest. Know. And another gin. Yay. <laughs> And don't forget to join me and Emma in our tasting room on Sunday and she can tell us all about the gin.